Hello, and welcome to the MadeCast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Miles. I'm Red. I'm Chin. And I'm Anthony. Today, we get to listen in on Alex's talk with Michael Martin, who is part of the core team behind Urquan Masters. Urquan Masters. They talk about his experiences working on the open source port of Star Control 2. It's going to be an exciting one today. This is a really good uh, conversation about uh, the struggles with trying to port Urquan Masters, which is essentially like the spiritual successor to Star Control 2. It's literally like they took some of the... It's a, like it's using all like the open source software from star control Two to make basically keep it going and make it working on all these new systems. But because of constant code change and big platforms like Apple switching their code and using something else, they have to recode an entire open source game to make it work or something. It's an interesting talk. I also want to urge everybody out there to Give Urquan Masters a shot. U-R-Q-U-A-N Masters. You can just Google that, and then you can find a link and get it all set up. But first, the news. The Amiga is getting a mini machine. I wonder if it's a kind of trend when everyone is going to make a mini version of the old console we have in old days. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so like the the thing about the Amiga is like I've, there's so many people that are making small portable versions of like their older consoles that are prepackaged with games that you can just load up and play. But if you really want to get in the hands-on part of it, you can just get a Raspberry Pi and figure it out and get unlimited games. You can have five consoles on one <laughs> and play some games on that. Well, having the shape of it probably can look different, I think. It's more like a collectible items and really playing on it. Yeah. I like the direction of people bringing out like mini consoles of old because it's like, I really like the Super Nintendo mini. I'm really bummed that I bought that I didn't buy that because now they're more than, they're more than a PS5. So, <laughs> yeah, if you try and buy one again, they're more than a PS5. So, I'm all for the mini. I think Nintendo start to make some special edition for like a game watch for some for some they games. Just did like, like a yeah, they just make a, a a special edition of game watch for some of the famous game and sell it as just for the collectible items while keeping an archive of the old game. I do remember them doing that. Yeah, I mean they had the they had one. I think that was like the original Zelda. Yeah, I think it's Zelda. game and watch. That would be pretty cool to have. And it's literally just like a a pocket Game Boy Mini, but you you can't remove the game. It's only the one game. I mean, I think the thing about Nintendo's mini consoles, the 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 Mini NES and the Mini SNES, is those games are already available. Like they're on Nintendo's store on their digital platform. You can play it on your Switch. Um, I think the point of the console releases was really just sort of the object appeal of the thing. Yeah. Because there are still like third-party controllers that are shaped exactly like a like an NES controller that you can plug into your yeah, Switch via, but they're not, by USB. They're not this. Yeah, but they're not the SNES controller. Like, yeah, it's like it's like reading a real one. book 
and reading a book on Kindle. That's the difference. Yeah. What is the other one? Uh, Back for Blood? Beta Weekend just ended. Yeah, that is definitely not Left for Dead. No. It's not Left for Dead. Definitely. Uh, I promise. <laughs> uh, I played it for a day or two. How's it? It's made by Turtle Rock, who made Left for Dead, who made, um, mm. shoot, what was that game? Evolve? Oh, okay. Yeah. And Back for Blood is just Left for Dead. I think there's one new concept in it. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to rag on the game. I think it's good. But there's not really much innovation there. It's just a newer Left 4 Dead. It's it's prettier, uh, it's snappier, but it's not new. Well, speaking of something that's also not new, if we're going to talk about something that still holds up, we'll throw it over to Michael Martin talking with Alex about Urquan Masters and Star Control 2. So without further ado, here's Michael Martin. And we are back with Michael Martin, otherwise known as Mick Martin. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thanks, Alex. Uh, good to be here. So uh, you are the current, well, one of the current bag holders on Urquan Masters. Is it not correct? Uh, I I am and have, uh, I am a member of the core team and have been for the duration of the project, basically. Yeah. And uh, you just, what, a couple months ago shipped your most, the first update in a while? Yeah, I guess it's been more than a few months at this point. But yeah, the 0.8 release was uh, around 2020. I've been looking into sort of some of the things people have been saying on the forums about it. It seems like this is enabling uh, Urquan to deal with much larger resolution, or at least people are going to be able to put in new UI elements to deal with larger resolution screens, stuff like that. Well, there's some less exciting versions of that that story. But yeah, the, the, big, the big exciting part of that was that I had spent a lot of uh, 2020 totally rewriting the graphics backend. The reason for this was... Because uh, our previous release, which was about 10 years ago, uh, and was you know, more or less done as, as far as we were concerned. Like, this is, your Urquan Masters has not been an aggressively developed project for quite some time. Sure. But uh, as Apple had been changing its, uh, as things have been changing in the world, we've been putting out new releases of the 10-year-old code to run better on modern systems, to link against the modern runtimes, that kind of thing. So like when Apple hmm. dropped 32-bit Intel support, we had to rebuild everything 64-bit and release it. And since <laughs> the first releases of this were back in like 2001, the earliest Mac releases on this were even PowerPC. <laughs> we, were no, we were no stranger to having to have multiple architecture support. But at the point that was happening, we just shifted over to just 64-bit, you know, should stop complaining at that point. And then we made the terrible, terrible error of saying, now that we've got the 64-bit build with all of the you know all of the libraries the way we like them, we probably won't need to change this in the near future. The next week, Apple announced that they were deprecating the entirety of OpenGL. Oh, for God's sakes. So that's my fault. Sorry. Th- those of you that liked OpenGL and don't want to switch to metal, it's probably my fault that this happened by saying that we would be that we would be cool. <laughs> That is so Apple. Who the hell deprecates support for OpenGL? What the hell? Well, they haven't actually gotten rid of it yet, but they they keep promising to. And the more important part of this was that over those intervening twenty years or thereabouts, uh, you know, we had started out, uh, you know, at the, when when the project had originally begun, the idea was that we would be, you know, the idea was always that we would be using SDL as our compatibility layer. Mm-hmm. And at the time, SDL basically told you, ah, yes, a compatible video setup, that's going to look like a rectangle of pixels that you write pixels to, and then you do stuff with that. And that was great, except when it wasn't, 
And when it wasn't, we had this OpenGL layer that you would use to you know, draw the pixels into a texture and then make the texture do the things that you want. Uh, not mm -hmm. exactly exciting stuff, but you know, there's something like it in basically every 2D program out there these days. So we should probably back up here. I'm not sure if all our readers even know what Urquan Masters is. So why don't you tell the story of how you got involved and what it is? Okay, so what it is, is a licensed port of the original game Star Control 2 from 1993, which was a space adventure game that is pretty neat and doesn't have a lot of meaningful uh, successors. It didn't found a genre and it didn't really belong to one. You can point to games that were like it you know, over the years. Starflight is the obvious one, which is from mm. an, an earlier era. And there's, the, of course, Origins, the, the more recent Star uh, Star Control game. I haven't gotten around to playing Origins yet, just because, you know, for a number of reasons. But among them is that my my Steam backlog is way too huge, and uh, <laughs> in the intervening ten years, the kinds of games that I play the most have shifted. I mean, it's exactly what you think it is. There's nothing wrong with Origins. It is exactly what you think it is a three D Star Control two. Okay, yeah. So that's yeah, but it's not like how you can point at Lemmings and say. You can kind of see the beginnings of tower defense there. Hmm. There's nothing I can think of today that you can point at and say Star Control Two was a big part of this. Mm -hmm. Like the things that would, the things that could conceivably have come out of that wound up following Fallout instead. Yeah, uh, No Man's Sky, I guess, would sort of be a, a successor, but by no means. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you think because I, I always thought of it as more of an adventure game with space with space combat. Hmm. Yeah, I, I see it as an exploration game. Yeah, and so yeah, like for me, it's a for me, it's a graphic adventure. Hmm. Oh, I should see that because you do have to sort of slot in the things with various races instead of NPCs. You work. You talk to you talk to the aliens. You get clues that tells you, oh, I should go explore this other part of the galaxy where you go find things, get them analyzed, and then that gives you more clues to go look at other things. So it's if you have to put it in a genre these days, it's an open world RPG. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely, but. If you play it like it's an open world RPG, you're going to have a real bad time. <laughs> yes, also, if you try to play it like it's GTA 1, you're going to have a real bad time. Well, it's sort of Grand Theft Ship, I suppose, in some ways, but that is difficult, uh, a difficult comparison. So how did you get to be a part of the core team? Mostly by chance. So my, my history with, with Star Control 2 basically boils down to I played it you know, as a child growing up when it came out in DOS in 1992 and was sort of a fan throughout the 90s. It wasn't a hugely influential game in the sense of having a lot of clones, but it was a game that a lot of people played and liked. And, you know, it had, I, I would occasionally check in on fan sites and that sort of thing. And one, one week I checked in at a point where the creators had said, we're thinking about open sourcing this game, but we don't want to do that if there isn't going to be a team to work with it. You know, people should contact us with, with portfolios saying that, you know, showing that they would be able to do something worthwhile with this. So I took this shoot em up that I had built with some folks on a local BBS back in high school, ported it to Linux with SDL1 and sent them a copy of that and said, I did this, I can I can do this. And I was one of the four, three or four people that they'd picked to kick off the project. And uh, we were the ones, you know, we largely stuck with it uh, throughout. The thing I love about it is this is 100% completely sanctioned by the original authors who still had access to the IP, which is crazy. And that they also allowed you to port the arguably the best version of the game, which is the 3DO version, right? Well, it turns out that this was because they hadn't really uh, uh, this was this was an era before version control was standard. <laughs> so uh, we got the 3DO version because that was the only version they had. That was the most recent revision, right? And so yeah, the flip side of this is that, like as far as I know, the Star Control One sources are still lost. Mm. 
because one was turned into two DOS and two DOS was turned into two 3DO. And yeah, that went from there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is true that um, it is definitely the case that uh, Urquan Masters is one of the earliest cases I know of, of a public licensing of, of an older game. Uh, there had been cases of relicensing for Linux ports. Uh, SDL itself was that for Sid My- uh, came into being so that uh, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri could be ported, but that was a commercial project. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it was one where they were, you know, it was being released in a public way. And it was really the first, it, it was, if not the first, it was one of the most, one of the earliest ones. Like when we, when we needed to reach out to people for help with rights or how things should work, you know, everybody from, the other licensees, because you know they were the developer studio, but we still had to work with. Uh, we still had to work with. Uh, they were calling them. I think they were calling themselves Atari at the time, mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that uh, we weren't going to step on parts of the IP that were not, you know, that they couldn't license to us. Crystal Dynamics had a bit of that too. Like the 3D version had these videos, uh, videos that were part of it, and those aren't part of Urquan Masters because those were those were made by uh, different subsidiaries of Crystal Dynamics that we couldn't get the, the rights to. Mm. And and that points to like the central issue in this industry, right? Like, just because you have the rights to the game doesn't mean you have the rights to the whole game. Well, if you're going to go that route, then you can go all the way back to ID, who had set up their whole point, their whole setup with Quake and the Quake Two engines, where they would open source the engine <clears> and <throat> sell you the content, and mm-hmm. then other people. And then, of course, the the ID tech was widely licensed, and that became a you know, a big deal as well. But, you know, for many, many years, uh, I haven't checked for like the most recent ones, but for many, many years, uh, id Tech had GPL versions of pretty much all of their code. So if you wanted to do something with uh, a advanced Quake engine, it was right there for you to, you know, it was right there for you to use if you were going to be a GPL project. I mean, honestly, I think half of that is because Carmack wanted to share his code because it's amazing code. I, I'm not going to object as a software developer. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but it really isn't. It's if you're looking at a movie and you get the rights, the the rights to a movie, right? You get the whole movie, you get the soundtrack, you get everything that's in that movie. Maybe they have to take a song out. But TV gets messier, right? Like WKRP Cincinnati's all screwed up because there's all these big songs in it and they can't get the rights. But in video games, you've got code, you've got art, you've got sound, you've got music, and and the great thing about Urquan Masters is it's got all that stuff and it's all allowed to be in there except for like that video you mentioned it's such a unique relic for that fact the other part that was yeah there's two other things that i think are unique relics about that part one of them is that we dual licensed the you know it was it was pretty obvious you know when they were working it out that one of the things that they didn't want to have happen is they didn't want to end up commercially competing with themselves and that's Mm. normally a problem with open source software because selling your own copy of it is literally the first thing that most open source software will let you do uh, you have to do a license. You had to do a license the content, and if you're id and you're selling Quake and you're license and you're you know and you're publicly licensing the engine, that's not a problem because you've still got that channel where you're selling stuff. But you know that wasn't what they were looking for for this because at that point the game was ten years old and was believed to be commercially non-viable. More on that mm-hmm. in a moment. So they so uh, they ultimately wound up licensing it to us under uh, Creative Commons non-commercial you know uh, attribution non-commercial share-like, I believe, was the full set. I'd have to go check. Which, is, which in and of itself is interesting, right? Because this is software and you're using Creative Commons licenses. Usually people would use a GPL or Apache or MIT. Well, right, but that's code. So yeah, this is also fun because it means that the, the content was non-commercial. So first off, that means if you look at if you look up Oracle Masters in Debian, it's filed under non-free and correctly so, non-commercial use. You know, when you have the non-commercial use that, that puts it out of the free software uh, mm. area, 
So like Debian will not sell you a CD with Urquan Masters on it because, you know, they, there's a non-commercial use thing on it and they don't want mm-hmm. to do that. And like, this seems like the right thing to do given, you know, given the desires of like, this was, this was clearly a, a license that got the results that the licensors wanted. Uh, it has also meant that over the years, whenever anybody wanted to put it on a cover disc or something, it turns out that the bias of open source developers against non-commercial use only requirements isn't completely unfounded. Um, we have had a lot of cases where we've had to forward stuff to the to the original creators to say, we're being asked for permission to stuff that we can't give because we're just licensees ourselves and mm-hmm. getting back a, yes, cover discs are fine, you know, do the, you know, go ahead and put that on your cover disc and, you know, have that be its thing. It's inter- interesting the cover disc people even asked. I, I used to do those things. Very rarely did people actually go around and ask for rights. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many it showed up without them asking, but like, I, I, it had to have been at least six times over the years that we got <laughs> that we got pings from people being conscientious and us having to forward that on. And in, in each case, it came down, you know, pretty quickly. But it was, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting case. Uh, it's also fun because and this is not as directly related to Urquan Masters, but if you look at uh, other game development communities, uh, assets do have sort of evolved into a position where Creative Commons is a more uh, plausible place for things to work. Mm-hmm. And there has been a significant amount of bad blood online between these communities. And I, I feel like I've spent longer than most in the in the flashpoint of that. So oh, I, I think that it's a it's a very understandable division though, because you've got the one side where people are very specific and down to the bit, and then you've got the other side where the creative commons is this like loosey goosey thing, right? Like I wouldn't say it's so much that as much as it is what you're going to be doing with it. You know, at the end of the day, people are generally not digging all the way down into the GPL stuff and being careful about it. Because even though like for instance, one of the specific things GPL three was invented to make was mm. to make it so that uh, distributing GPL source over BitTorrent wasn't a huge uh, uh, license yeah. violation. I don't think any of the GPL. I don't think any. I don't think any of the people that were using BitTorrent to distribute open source software ever. You know, I don't think many of them ever particularly cared about that themselves. They're like, this is obviously, you know, this is obviously okay, and everything else is just sort of under the hood. I think you saw a lot more loosey goosey stuff, as you were saying, with it. I think the part where it really split up, where the real uh, distinction was, was or the legitimate one was around what are you doing with this artifact once you have it? And sure. software and paintings just are not the same thing. No, no, definitely. And so you know, after most of the work in Urquan Masters happened, I went and spent a fair amount of time working in the text, you know, working with the text game communities on stuff, which had a very similar split involving a uh, preference for Creative Commons for a lot of their work compared to a lot of traditional open source licenses. And mm-hmm. yeah, people get uh, very rude about that if they think that their preconceptions are being challenged. Well, I, I, I guess what I meant by the loosey-goosey attitude is sort of, if you go to the Free Software Foundation and ask them about free software, Stallman's still there and he'll give you a friggin' phone book of explanations about, about it, right? You go to like Lawrence Lessig or Creative Commons guys, they're like, attribution, share and share alike. Like they have it really concise, right? And it's something that an artist can understand. Whereas if I were to go to, you know, any software developer and ask them the difference between Apache, MIT, and GPL, you know, 50% of them are going to be able to tell me, right? Right. And I mean, we actually talked to the FSF very early on because we had some original questions about like, what are we, what do we need to do, you know, if we were going to release this whole thing under GPL back when we were deciding what sort of licenses we were going to use for stuff, there was the question of what should we do for, you know, you know, for the 12 hours of audio that are the dialogue in Mm -hmm. the game, for example, they're like, oh, well, obviously this should be shipped in every copy of everything. 
as uh, as uncompressed audio because that is the, for, the the form in which you would traditionally edit it. And we said, right. So releasing everything in GPL, you know, GPLing everything is is off the table for technical reasons. Yeah. Because in 2001, casually throwing a gigabyte over your links per download is is not a, is not a starter, particularly not when you're a grad student, which is what we were at the time, and we'd have been fronting it. That's an interesting point about the GPL. Like compressing the audio makes it non-GPL compliant. Well, because it says if you're going to distribute it, it should be in the form that you edited it in. And so, you know, that was <laughs> they gave the, they gave the answer that was consistent with that. No, you're right. And and exactly that's exactly sort of the problem with the FSF, I think, is that like they've built this box. And if it doesn't fit in that box, it doesn't work. I'm going to be polite about this and leave my personal opinions out of it. And just note that our project as you know, we have we were licensees and all of these things, and our goals have generally been practically you know, given you have generally been driven by the, the practicality of things rather than the ideology of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the FSS problem right there is that it's an ideology driven organization from the core. It's not really driven by practicality. Yeah. Now, the other thing that sort of went wrong with our core masters, and I can't say it went wrong, is that, but it is probably one of the reasons why we didn't see a lot of development over it over the past 10 years, is that 2010 is about the time when we all, when the core team mostly drifts apart. After, you know, you know, 10 years is a long time to work on something. And we got to the point sure. where it was basically where we wanted it to be. Um, but 2010 is also the point where DOSBox actually gets to the point where it's actually working. Uh-huh. Once that happens, you start, once that happens, DOS games start becoming commercially viable again. Star Control 2 becomes available for purchase. And a lot of people will just go and buy it and play that one themselves or get it as part of a package or what have you. Yeah. That yeah. said, it's been tremendously gratifying to see that most of the reviews of commercial versions of Star Control 2 say, why would you do this when Urquan Masters exists? <laughs> this is not, for example, what will happen. You, you do not see that review for, for instance, Civilization 2. You do not so often see, why would you yeah. play Civ 2 when Free Civ exists? Oh, absolutely. I, I, actually, Heroes of Might and Magic 3 is, is similar. There are like three different distributions of it, and only, I think the GOG version is the one, maybe. No, actually, I think it's ScumVM is the fastest one that actually, like, works well but like there's a gog version there's a remaster on steam and they're all people have very strong opinions about which one is the best one yeah so it's sort of an interesting uh, setup there but when we had started we really there was really no choice for it as developers it was like this was a game we liked the developers published the source code in a not entirely runnable form but you know with promise how do you get this to run on a modern system and uh well we wouldn't know at the time that 3do emulation would turn into a complete garbage fire but it um the the 3do project did not succeed um but dos emulation at the time and the state of windows around you know this was around the just before xp came out Mm. uh, was such that if you wanted to play star control 2 you really couldn't you needed a mid 90s era dos machine if you wanted to play it so a machine that was five years old and that had an antiquated operating system on it (laughs) because i'm not sure windows 98 could handle it I think you might have actually needed Windows 95. At- that makes sense. 98 was kind of a garbage fire, but better than 95 and better than me. I mean, 98 SE was what I was using in the initial development, and it was quite good. Well, I'm sorry to cut you off there, Michael, but uh, thank you for all the work that you've done. I absolutely adore Star Control 2, and I've been so excited that Urquan Masters has been here. I've been playing it since right at the beginning. Also, I never did answer your initial question, though. Oh, yeah. Which is development resumed because once Apple started changing their hardware and their software significantly... Uh, we needed to port SDL over to SDL2, which uses a graphic accelerator as its fundamental notion. So if you're running this new version of Urquan Masters, 
the gameplay hasn't changed a whole lot. Like you can name your save games now, basically. <laughs> but uh, if you look at if you look at like a GPU render or something, it's actually using Metal or DirectX 11 or what have you under the hood because SDL2 actually has modern graphics drivers on it. Yeah, and no more OpenGL. Well, you'll still use OpenGL if you're running it on Linux because that's the that's the default accelerated stuff, at least until they make Vulkan the default. But if they do that, we won't have to change. And we didn't have to change that much to port it over to make everything accelerated with this other stuff too. So, you know, I'm pretty happy with the work the team did 15 years ago when we had our graphics stuff modularized. <laughs> Excellent. That, well, that's how you pay yourself forward as a developer, right? Like you always thank 15-year-old Michael. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the other thing is, yeah, you should totally play the game. Oh, it's one of the best games ever made. Well, we have to end it there, but thank you so much, Michael. Good to Everybody go play Urquan Masters. <laughs> Take care. Thank you, Michael, for joining us and talking about Urquan Masters. Uh, that's for everything that I've like I've I've constantly heard about Urquan Masters and everything about it. I've seen it being played. Uh, I've never had a chance to play it myself. Well, not had the chance. I've just never set a time because every time I think about it, I just think about it for a while, and it's like an amazing. I love how it lives in my head as this like pedestal space game where it's just full exploration. But I think it's about time that I get on starting to play it. So maybe next week I'll give an update about what it's like to actually play it. What else has everybody been playing? I've been sort of learning how to program because I want to eventually start working on games. Oh, nice. And um, I discovered this game called uh, Twilio Quest. Um, It was sort of this uh, independently developed game. And pretty much uh, it kind of teaches you to code through kind of like an RPG style um, structure, which is pretty Mm. cool. Um, Yeah. It kind of teaches you like real world programming, like uh, JavaScript, Python, PHP. Hmm. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's sort of in this like a 16 bit sort of retro style. And Mm. um, yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it um, for what it is. How much have you learned so far? Good. I've learned a good amount of Python, so I've been going through the Python sort of uh, quest, as they put it. The quest for the Python. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, Does it actually have you working your way down a Python-shaped path, and then you reach uh, the tail end of the snake, and it's like, you've learned me, you've learned all of me. <laughs> Um, the, the name of the quest is, uh, uh, Mysteries of the Pythonic Temple. Hmm. So it's kind of like a, I guess, Hmm. Indiana Jones type (laughs) story. This makes me want to learn more code now. (laughs) It's like, I want to solve the mystery of the Pythonic Temple. Yeah. Yeah. So I highly recommend if, uh, if you're looking to get into programming, check out Twilio Quest. Do you all know Nintendo recently released a game that allows you to make a game. Oh, that that sounds that doesn't this doesn't sound make sense, but <laughs> I heard about this when it when it was announced. I can't remember the name of it now. Yeah, what is it, it? it's released it and they make a game which is actually equal to their self-developed game engine. They make it for kids, so I don't think they don't they teach you any of the real language but they do teach you the pipeline of the game development and they let you to work on a lot of games like uh shooter games and a lot of stuff i think it's a pretty good attempt to teach games especially to people who know nothing about language i mean if you 
if you tell someone to go develop to some games and the first thing you gotta throw at them is like some C sharp or C plus C double plus and I think they will freak out. <laughs> they probably freak out. I think Nintendo have done a quite a good job in introducing game development without scaring all the people away. So we had a program at the museum where we taught kids how to program games and everything using Scratch. That was really awesome to see how how much the kids are into learning about how to code when it's put into something that makes sense. Something that's not overly complicated, that's very like visually there as well. I think it's a pretty worthwhile endeavor to go through. I heard a lot of stories of a f- probably a few countries trying to make coding a mandatory education for the early kids. And I- I'm still having imagination that the kids 10 or 20 years later will be laughing at us. Hey, you don't know coding? You don't know any of the language? And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. We're going we're gonna to be old men yeah. really fast. It's like, I remember Windows XP. <laughs> <laughs> that was my home system. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. One of these, we'll get there eventually. I'm not there yet, so. <laughs> Time definitely flies. I mean, I remember working on Windows 95. <laughs> that was our home computer for a while. Yeah, remember when you drag your window, they would just do like a ninja thing and have many of them split off it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it like, yeah, just drag the screen and just like leave trails around. Yeah, it's... I missed that. It was cool. Yeah, that was cool. They yeah, should, I mean, they, they should that, that as, as an Easter egg function in yeah. Windows. I really love that. It's an option. Yeah. yeah. Something like a. Uh, so I looked up the Nintendo game, and it's called Game Builder Garage. Uh-huh. Ooh. For anyone interested. All right. I think it's about time we wrap it up, though. So we want to say thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at infothemayad.org. We would like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services. And we will continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chen. I'm Anthony. I'm Red. And I'm Miles. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.